Welcome to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast, where storytellers have a chance to bite it live. This event was recorded in front of a live audience on July 12, 2015 at Preservation Hall in Wellfleet, Massachusetts. The theme for the evening is locals. Tonight, we have uh, the winner from our only Boston show, which we did in the fall, um, who happens to be a Cape Cod resident named Terrence Noonan. And uh, he's going to come up here and kick it off for us. Welcome, Terrence. Did, um, did, you, did you move my plastic white chair? What? You heard me. Did you move my plastic white chair? It was in this spot, and now your car is in the spot. Did you move that chair? Uh, I, I don't know what you're talking about, man. All I'm doing is I'm just trying to get to work. Did you move that chair? Listen, obviously, I didn't see a chair here. If I had known, you had done. I shoveled. I shoveled three feet of snow, okay? And now you're in my spot. It hasn't snowed in like four days. I shoveled three feet of snow. I'm going to stop that part of the story right there because it exemplifies what local means. There's language. There's an external object. There's a plastic chair. Everybody knows what I'm talking about. This is Boston. Somebody had shoveled. For purposes of this story, his name is Steve Flanagan. Be <laughs> because his name is Steve Flanagan. And I'm also stopping it to spare you the inevitable beating that I took. So, with that, it exemplifies all those things. Years later, I had a job offer from the uh, Department of Labor. And it was, a, it was a really sweet job offer. Had a place in Greenwich Village. They were going to pay me a very nice salary. I was going to be, you know, number crunching for the Department of Labor and, you know, investigating sweatshops and, you know, triangle fire type stuff. And it was so good. And I got to live in, you know, oh, it's just great. So, of course... I moved to Alabama instead and took a job that didn't pay and it was in Alabama. And I did that because, you know, we all make terrible decisions and they mostly involve lust. And there was a, there was a woman involved and she happened to be going to Alabama to work for the ACLU of Alabama and she said, Terrence, you should forget about the Department of Labor. You should come down and you should do death penalty work. And I thought, well, maybe I'll get laid. Okay, so I said, yeah, I'm going to do that. And we, I, this was, the, that was pretty much all the planning. That was like, you know, five to seven minutes. I called the Department of Labor. I apologize. And then we realized we don't have a car. We don't have a place to stay. We don't have anything. So we do what any reasonable attorneys do, which is we just went out and drank some beer. And then we went to the airport and rented a car. And as we were there at the airport, there was a woman in front of us and she probably lived in an earth house, um, and she, you know, she, she, she just kind of smelled like um, patchouli, and she was lost, and she's trying to get to the vineyard, and it's, you know, it's about 9, 30, 10 o'clock at night, and she has no idea what she's doing, and she doesn't have, I don't have an ID, and she has two kids with her, and they're little kids, and I don't know how she wound up here, so finally we get up, and again, the kind of local connection happens because when I give the guy my license, he's looking at me, I'm looking at him, he's looking at me, and he kind of just goes, it's expired. 
and I was like, is that, you know, is that going to be a problem? Like, why would that be a problem? I obviously have a, have a license. So he, you know, he helps me out because I'm local, whatnot. And I'm there, and the girlfriend's there, and we're going to Alabama. For those who don't really conceptualize, that's south. And there's this mom with these two kids, and they're trying to get to the ferry, even though there is not going to be a ferry waiting for them. So, again, being rational attorneys, I'm like, listen, just get in the car. We'll take you down to Woods Hole. You can find a place to stay. So instantly, we have now diverted. So I've diverted from the Department of Labor. I've diverted, and I wind up on the Cape. And the other planning that we did was, so this is Saturday, and the jobs start on Monday. And you know, I've never been there, have an address. We drop those people off, say goodbye to Earth House woman, and we just start driving. I had bought a whole bunch of 40s because I thought that's, that's pretty much shows how responsible I am. I'm not drinking hard alcohol as we drive, and it will give me a place to urinate. This is before the NASA woman who went to kill her, um, uh, I don't know, uh, competition, I guess. She wore a diaper and a, and a Bozo the Clown thing, and she drove from Texas to Florida with the diaper so she could urinate. So we, we drive all the way down, and I've got clothes, and it's great, and we, we get into Alabama, we find our way, and we feel like rolling probable cause because the car has mass plates, and we are obviously lost. We get to Montgomery, which is where the ACLU is, and also my job with the Alabama Prison Project. And we, we pull in, and it's June 1st, which is just any other day. And we're driving through Montgomery, and I'm in awe because I'm seeing all these places that I've only you know, read about in case law and in old black and white terrible photos. You know, there's a Woolworths right there that I know sit-ins occurred in. There's, you know, there's the Dexter Street Church right there where, you know, Reverend Abernathy spoke, where Martin Luther King spoke. And what I didn't realize from the photos is that church on Dexter is directly across from the State House. It's right there. And so we're driving around, and it's as if there's been a neutron bomb. There are no people anywhere. And we don't know where we're going, completely lost. And finally, I see a guy on the sidewalk, and I pull over to him, and I just say, hey, um, Excuse me, um, you know, where, where is everybody? And he's like, boy. That was the first time I had heard that word used. I'm like, boy, do you know what day it is? And I'm like, yeah, it's, it's, it's Monday, and i got to get to work. And he's like, it's a state holiday. I'm like, state, state holiday? He's like, Today is Jefferson Davis's birthday. <laughs> and... And so the incredulity obviously showed on our faces. And even if they didn't show on our faces, my sort of sudden screaming of, what in the fuck, um, just kind of came out. And he's like, it is a state holiday, just like we, we have Robert E. Lee Day, too. And, and I'm starting to feel a weight just kind of come down. I had been so excited to come down and do this work. And it's crushing on me now. And so we're driving, and I figure the Alabama Prison Project's going to be open, and you know, my girlfriend thinks the ACLU is going to be open. 
and I just keep thinking of that Woolworth, and I keep thinking of the Dexter Street Church where so many wonderful things have happened, and the State House. And we pull into a gas station, and I have the address. I tell my girlfriend, I'm like, listen, I'm just going to run in, see if this guy knows. This is all pre-GPS, and in my mind, it was pre-maps, but I could have bought one. And I go in, and there's a guy standing behind the counter, and I go up to him and I just say, do you know where this address is? And he opened his mouth and he spoke. And I had no idea what he said <laughs> at all. And I had been in Thailand the previous year. And I had traveled through North Africa. And I had met the Tuareg. And they made more sense than what this man was trying to convey to me. And I, I started to kind of shake a little bit, and I went out to the car, and I got in, and my girlfriend said, are you okay? And I just wept like a baby because I was so scared. <laughs> and I didn't understand the language, and I didn't understand these manifestations of the culture that were happening here, that you're gonna honor Jefferson Davis's birthday and so, we didn't get to work that day. Instead, we drove over to the church, and we went in, we sang some gospel. It was fantastic, because of course it was going on. And then we walked up to the state house, and another thing I did not know, you walk up these just majestic marble stairs, just beautiful, it just sits up on this hill, and you look over and you see Lurleen's name. You know, for those of you who are old enough to remember, Lurleen Wallace. Lurleen Wallace building is right across from there. And you get up to the top step and you look and you see that. And then when you turn back, your foot hits something. And it's kind of shiny and slippery. And you look down and it says on this spot, Jefferson Davis is sworn in as the president of the Confederacy. So I pissed on it. Thank you. Our first storyteller is Dan Wolf. Welcome, Dan Wolf. This, this is great because you get to go first, you get it over with. For those who don't know, I'm also the state senator. One of the reasons this is really cool is I get to speak to people and it's not about wealth and income inequality. And it's not about how the middle class is getting screwed even though it is and we all know that stuff. This is gonna be completely unrelated. It's gonna be related to the shirt I'm wearing. See, it says Chatham Airport and seaplane base. And for those who don't know, there is an amazing aviation history here on Cape Cod. There's a Provincetown, a Chatham, a Marston's Mills, a Hyannis, and a uh, Otis, those are the airports that you know about now on Cape Cod, but there used to be places like Sky Meadow in Orleans, places like East Harwich International Airport, which I actually landed at early in my career. So the story, this story begins, I learned to fly on Cape Cod almost 40 years ago, if you can believe that, a toddler learning to fly. And I ended up becoming a flight instructor and teaching at the Chatham Municipal Airport. I was a teacher, I taught people how to fly, which was really cool. And that was back in the late 70s, early 80s. And one of the things that we had, see it says seaplane base here. Well, the seaplane base is gone. But right next to the Chatham Airport, right next to that runway, there, there's a little pond called White's Pond. And we actually used to use that to do seaplane instruction. 
And I was an instructor for about seven years, which people don't do anymore because you get hired by the airlines like in six months, which shouldn't make you feel really comfortable. But back then, you, you actually had to apprentice by teaching other people how to fly and stuff. And one of the things I taught, which I loved, was I taught people how to fly seaplanes. And back then, to me anyway, airline pilots were like God. They walked on water. And when an airline pilot would walk into the airport, we would all bow and salute and genuflect and everything else for the airline pilot. And one day, this local airline pilot named Jack, and for reasons that will become clear through this story, his nickname was Fat Jack. Nothing pejorative there, and I didn't make up the name, so don't get me politically correct demerits there. But Fat Jack came in, and Fat Jack, who was an airline pilot, so I genuflected, wanted to become a seaplane pilot. And I was going to give him his seaplane rating. So we went down to White's Pond and we took a few lessons. And after like the third lesson, Jack showed up and we went down to the pond and it was a perfectly calm, flat day, no wind at all. And one of the dangers with seaplane flying is that if there's no wind and the water is glassy, the floats can actually create suction as they go over the water and the airplane can't get off the water. So it's a real danger in seaplane flying. If that water is, is flat, you've got to do something to mix it up. One of the things I had taught Jack in a previous lesson, because Jack was used to flying with a headset and an intercom, and, and he wasn't used to sort of going back into the good old days. And these airplanes that we, fought, we taught seaplanes in, they were front and back Piper Cubs. You all probably have seen Piper Cubs. Fabric airplanes, front seat, back seat, the instructor sits in the back. And those airplanes are really noisy because basically the air is just kind of flowing through it. So one of the one of the drills that we do, one of the things that we teach is if the instructor needs to take over the airplane because something's happening, what you do is you shake the stick. So the student is holding onto the stick and flying the airplane, and if you're sitting behind him and you want the airplane for whatever reason, like you're about to have a midair or the pilot's about to screw up, you shake the stick, and they let go and they give you the airplane. So anyway, Jack and I went down to the water that day, and I looked out and I said, oh shit. First of all, fat Jack actually was fat, truth be known. And he weighed a lot. And these airplanes are very sensitive to the weight. So I knew right off the bat there was no wind to help us get up. And I knew it was going to be a bit of a challenge getting out of it, because White's Pond is really, really small. So I said to Jack, here's what you do. You got to do a couple of figure eights on the water before you take off, because that gets the waves going in the pond. And then that roughs up the water. That breaks the suction between the floats. And the airplane will get off the water. So Jack was all into it. and we fired up the engine and off we went and Jack went around the pond and we did a figure eight and then we start line up with the pond and we're looking down to the far end everything is looking great and we bounce a couple of times over the over the wake that we had created and off we go we zip down the pond and I'm like saying wow this is really cool I'm teaching an airline pilot how to do something this is like really out of the out, you know out of the park. So going down and I'm saying, Jack, man, you're you're come on, get the airplane off the water. I know we're heavy, but this thing's ready to fly. And Jack, just as we get near the end, the airplane just sort of staggers off the water, and it's just sort of hanging there. And I'm saying, Jesus, this guy flies like shit. I mean, he's an airline pilot. What the hell is he doing? And down at the end of the pond, there's like a V, right between the trees. The trees are all at, it's a it's a it's a wooded pond at the end, but there's a little V at the end. And Jack is like, I can see he's heading for this V and the airplane is all over the place. And we go through the V and one of the wingtips actually brushes the top of one of the trees, saying this guy is really good. This guy is quite a pilot. 
And I'll never forget this visual. It's one of those images that's blazed on my head because I looked down after we passed the tree line and off the end of that runway at Chatham, there's a stop and shop. There was a stop and shop. It's where the supermarket was. And I'll never forget the image of a drop of water dropping off of the float, off of the pontoon as I looked down. And I remember seeing it splatter on the roof of the stop and shop. And then I remember thinking, shit, if I can see that drop of water actually splattering on the roof, that means we're really freaking low. And at that point, at that point I'd had enough. I was getting over the mystique of the airline pilot and the genuflecting, and I couldn't help myself. And Jack was huge. And remember, I'm sitting behind him, right? But I had had enough. I'm enough of this uh, low, you know, high aptitude pilot shit. So I leaned forward and I said, Jack, exactly what the fuck are you doing? Because this airplane now is just sort of scraping along over the stop and shop. Now we're over the parking lot and people are like diving under their cars. I had enough of this. And I'll never forget the look on Jack's face. Because Jack turned and I'm looking at his half side of the face and I'm leaning forward. And I'm looking at Jack. Both of Jack's hands are on his knees. Jack's not flying the goddamn airplane. <laughs> and I'll never forget the look on Jack's face because the color drained from it. And he said, what do you mean, what am I doing? And, and Jack is sitting in the front thinking, this guy is never going to be an airline pilot. He sucks. And I'm sitting in the back thinking, I'm going to let this guy go because he's an airline pilot and he knows what he's doing. Well, here's the deal, guys. So we did the figure eight around the pond, right? And then we start down the pond and we hit a couple of the waves and the airplane bounced. And the elevator, which is that thing on the tail, it bounced too. And when it bounced, it shook the stick. So Jack's sitting up front like an obedient pilot. He says, oh, I guess Dan wants the airplane now. So Jack lets go, puts his hands on his knees. His profile, never forget it, his shoulders went from side to side. I couldn't see past him. I had no idea what had happened. All I knew was that Jack couldn't fly an airplane. Our eyes momentarily met, and, and we headed over to Long Pond, you know, the Long Pond, because we couldn't fuck up there. It's like an eight-mile pond. And we landed and we taxied over to the beach and we got out of the airplane and we both sat down and we looked at each other and we both puked. <laughs> and, and the punchline is that day, God was truly my co-pilot. All right, here we go. Our next storyteller is Roland Sherman. Really cool? That's great, because that's the, that's the subject of my talk. Uh, talk, it's not a talk, it's sort of a story, and is it local? Well, yeah, because, uh, well, it's all about cool. And is it local? Yeah, because it's cool to be on Cape Cod, right, right, right? And also the local part is that about two minutes into this story there's gonna be a shark. And as you know, well, you know, sharks are in the news now because they've been coming here for 20 million years and someone saw one <laughs> last summer on Boston Beach, which was, you know, holy shit, a shark, you know, that's whatever they're doing. Well, this is about being cool. See what I mean? I was uh, 
goaded into this by the, the brilliant uh, Terence, who started this game, and I, I'm, I said, okay, I, I think I might have a story. And I, I was talking about being cool and whether I was cool or whether anyone was cool, and I started thinking, well, has anyone really been cool? You know, yeah, you think maybe the Dalai Lama was pretty cool or, you know, the uh, women's soccer team of last year, a couple of days ago, it was really cool, but they, uh, <laughs> they, uh, cool is in the eye of the beholder, and the beholder is you, so you gotta, you gotta figure it out for yourself. When I, you know, went to the first prom, I, I got a tuxedo and a little girlfriend, and I, man, I'm cool, but I don't know, really. We must have been ludicrous. And then James Dean came along, and we all, we all wanted to emulate James Dean because he was the epitome of cool. But emulating someone who's cool is, is really not very cool. <laughs> The, 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 I, I, my entry really into coolness is when I started working for the uh, for Jack Kennedy when he started the Peace Corps. And I, my first job uh, was that, and I I thought it was cool. I had a diplomatic passport, black passport, unofficial assignment for the United States government. You know that's pretty cool. I was just a kid, and our, my first assignment was. Uh, to go down to St. Lucia, where the, the first volunteers were, some of the first volunteers, and you know, to photograph what they were doing for public relations. And so I did, and uh, we, we stayed at this little uh, hacienda with a, with a cute bar in it, and while waiting to, to go out on assignment, I ran into this guy who, you know, this unbelievably good-looking model, male model, good-looking guy, white, white ducks, Blue blazer, coolest, coolest guy I ever saw. And he comes up to me and said, my name's Jim Thorne, Occupation Adventure. <laughs> what? Yeah, and here's my book. And he showed me a book. So not only is this guy great looking, but he's got a book. And it's him riding on sharks. He said, you don't have to be afraid of sharks because sharks will, who's a skilled scuba diver as well as a TV spokesperson and model, you know, you know, super looking guy. Everything about him was sparkling, a beautiful guy. No one could be that cool, I thought to myself. The next day, Jim and the rest of us, he took us out scuba diving. And I told my pals that this guy, even at age 25, I knew no one could be this cool. Something's gotta be wrong with this cat. And so we went scuba diving, and sure enough, he's a pretty good teacher. We all went scuba diving and swam around in, in the heat and the boat and so forth. And after the end, we pulled up on the boat, and Jim saw this melting gray mass of gack on the deck. And he said, oh my god, my suppositories. <laughs> Someone, I said, you get those hemorrhoids riding sharks, Jim? No. That's, that's the shark part of the story. <laughs> well, I continued, after my Peace Corps thing, I continued with my photography, and I did pretty good. 
and I traveled, I did a lot of neat stuff, and I still thought I was cool. And uh, I shot a picture of Bob Dylan at, at a concert, and it got to win a Grammy Award, and that was cool, except when I got the award, my name was misspelled in bronze, <laughs> and the award was all smashed up. So I sent it back and said, look, spell my name right and give me a good one, and I never heard from him again. Which brings us up to the local part of the thing. I'm, I'm still a photographer. I'm still out there. And I, was, I fancied this girl, this artist girl who lives in Provincetown. Blonde. She's an artist. She's really cute. Looks nice. I was uh, making all these moves. I'm trying to be as cool as I possibly can. We danced. I took her out to uh, New Year's Eve last year. And all I got was a kiss on the cheek, you know. <laughs> so I started, I, I started moving into gear, and I said, I, I, "Look, I, you're 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 for me. Let's let's get together. This is gonna move, move. Everything was cool." And uh, uh, I said, "Look, this is I'm Roland. I'm cool, and I, and and I'm not getting anything back for you. What's the, what's the, your ex-husband? Both of them." were drunks and dope dealers and you know, suicides. And what's, I'm not like that. I'm me. And if I can't have you, I'm going to get a dog. <laughs> and she said, what kind of puppy do you think you might be getting? <laughs> and the next storyteller is... Jonathan Cave. Jonathan! So my local is actually going to be uh, very far from here. It's actually traveling all the way over to Istanbul, Turkey. And when you get on the plane, you think to yourself, man, I'm going to someplace I have no idea what it's going to be like. I have no idea how I'm going to interact with the locals. And I don't know what it's going to be like to live there. I'm just kind of going and going to figure it out. And you dread the idea of being a foreigner. I mean, anytime you travel somewhere, you always want to be the local. You want to know everything that a local knows. And you feel like, if only I could be a local, I would know where the dives were. I would know how to barter. I would know how to find cool spots and really get the most out of my adventure. And so that's what you kind of seek through your travels. Um, and so when I went over to Istanbul, I was like, how can I be a local? And what, what can I do to adopt more of a local flair so that I feel like I'm more knowledgeable and I can get the most out of my trip? And so I began to pay attention a little bit to what the locals do. And, and the, the first and foremost thing is that you have to adopt a sports team there. I mean, here here we have so many sports, but there it's just football or soccer as we know it. Um, and there are three teams. There's Galatasaray, Fenerbahce, and Bashiktas. So I taught at a school um, at grades four through seven. Um, and basically, I would ostracize, you know, a third of my students if I picked the wrong team. Um, and so this whole time, I was just trying to figure out what student was what team and, um, and say, okay, you're Galatasaray, you're Fenerbahce. Do you want Galatasaray or Fenerbahce to win? What are you? What are you? You're 
your Fenerbahce. I was hoping for green and blue Fenerbahce. Um, and so you kind of weigh that out. Um, and you, you try to peg kind of where the allegiances fly. So I remember there was one time we would always take these mini buses, um, these little buses that would pick you up wherever and then drop you off wherever on a taxi on this fixed route. Um, and our driver, we were parked at the top of this mountainside and the driver, um, he's preparing for the game. And of course he's not able to go watch it because he's on duty. So he has his whole bus tricked out um, in Fenerbahce gear paraphernalia, and there's one last item that he has to hang up on the mirror. So he, uh, he reaches over, and this is as we're going down this winding road, and he completely lets go of the steering wheel, and he sits over in the other side of the seat, and he opens up the <laughs> glove compartment right there, and he's fishing through that. Meanwhile, the driver's seat is completely empty, and we're, we're just sitting there like, oh my gosh. Um, <laughs> and it starts drifting a little bit, and he pulls out these beads, and then he hangs them up around his rear view mirror, and they have the Fenerbahce blue and green colors. Um, and then he sits back and just gains control right at the last minute, kind of swerves back into the middle. And I realize at that point that um, I'm never going to have the allegiance uh, for, for feeling like a local at this soccer. So I should probably just give that, that up and, uh, and just go with it. Um, so then I began to look for other, other ways to feel more like a local, and then it was through dining, and um, you're like, okay, well, all this looks really touristy, so I'll just go to the hole-in-the-wall place. So you search around for a while, and you get lost, and you just keep asking people, which you don't understand, um, and you find this really grimy place. It's seedy, and you're like, oh, that's probably some good food in there. So you go in, and you sit down, and you're all excited. No one can understand you, and you're trying to do small talk and get in there, and then you just find out, no, the food is actually terrible. It's just a bad decision, and there's a reason it looks like this. Um, and so the, that, that capability to find the good spots also wasn't there. Um, and I was like, man, I'm really failing at this local business. I still feel like the foreigner, the, the white guy that's just kind of coming in to teach English, and that's all I can do. Um, and so I went with my school and um, decided, well, let me join the Turkish dance team. Um, so my school, had, my school had a Turkish dance team, and um, it was mostly comprised of about like 50-year-old men who had beer bellies uh, out to here. Um, and, and it wasn't that intense. I, I, I was dancing with an Irish coworker. Um, and we were, we were getting a little annoyed by that, but it was a lot of fun because we felt like we were beginning to learn um, some of the common swag um, that would hopefully define us as locals, one of which was the walk, which I began noticing everywhere, the Turkish walk, especially in Istanbul, is very defined. You have this kind of broad motion where everybody... And that was the swagger, and so I was like, okay, well, maybe that's the local that I've been missing. If I only walk every place with that type of swagger, then, um, then I'll feel like I'm in Istanbulu. Um, and so I perfected it during the dancing, but then found um, that I really just felt like an idiot when I was walking around like that. And that <laughs> I, I seemed to be very lazy and get no place because I was also walking at one mile per hour. <laughs> And so all these things kept happening, and, and I was like, man, I'm just never feeling like a local. And before I knew it, the school year 
is coming to a close and I decided that um, my year contract was enough for the time and I'm leaving, I was like, I, I never felt like I was a local. And that was a little disappointing to me. But yet when I was leaving, all the kids, they got teary-eyed. They started crying and like coming up to hug me and they kept saying, oh, we want you to stay, you want you to stay. And I realized at that moment that despite being a foreigner, that I was having a very immediate impact on these kids and that to them, I, I was a local and I was a part of this community. Thank you. Thank you so much for coming and joining us with your story, Josh Hoxie. That's a good name. did not expect to be called immediately after, and I did not expect to tell a story tonight, but thanks to, I guess, most of us were roped in by Terrence, so props to him for that, and being inspired by him to tell stories about not being local places, which I think a lot of us have done, so we'll, we'll carry on that theme. Uh, I, I was born and raised on the Cape. I feel really comfortable here. This is like my safe space, uh, and my story is about being like really far away from that, and um, I was in college, and I did a study abroad program in Copenhagen because I wanted to see what a civilized country was like, <laughs> and it was, and it was nice, and I spent a lot of time studying their perfectly run healthcare system, which was cool, and I spent a lot of time checking out their uh, welfare system, which involved one card that was your library card and social security card and Medicare medical card and bus pass and like everything else. And I was like, damn, this works really well. And um, I was really serious, I was studying economics and uh, I spent most of my time like really trying to learn from them. Um, but that's not really what the story's about either. Um, the story is really about one time when I tried to like let loose a little bit. And what I did was go to a bar that most of the American kids hung out at. And the reason the American kids hung out there was because for like 100 kroner, which is like, I guess, 20 bucks, going back a few years, trying to do the math, um, you could drink unlimited beer from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m., which you could see why Americans would be pretty stoked on that. Um, Danes start drinking at 16, so for them, it's just like a place to go point and laugh at Americans. But, <laughs> but for us, it was like the cool place to go. And I, I avoided it because I was trying to integrate with the culture and, uh, and trying to be hip, and I bought skinny jeans. And, um, and yeah, I, uh, I, I adopted a different swagger from the Turks, um, which involved a lot more like angular movement. <laughs> um, and yeah. Tried to tried to blend in, failing miserably. So, so I was in this this bar. It's called Cooler Bar, K U L O R, Cooler Bar. And uh, I remember uh, thinking that we had to like really go big for like two hours. So we get there, we start drinking, and we're hanging out, and we're drinking more. And then I'm like dancing, which like I know, despite my looks, I'm not a really good dancer. I know I, like a, I know I look like a really strong dancer. I'm not, believe it or not. Um, and I left the bar, like, 
at 101. Like the, the beer stopped and it was like, cool, time to go. So we left and the, the family I was staying with lived in the suburbs. You had to take uh, a train which ended at midnight. So I had to take what's called the night bus. Uh, and I'm with this woman I'm dating at the time. And the night bus is a little bit complicated. There's like a couple different ones. And we, uh, we find the right one and we stopped for um, this Danish delicacy, uh, which is literally a hot dog wrapped in bacon. Um, so you could see why they need like a really strong healthcare system, because that's like a normal diet for them. And, uh, and we get on the bus and we're, we're driving along and my girlfriend at the time, she starts to like feel really ill. And so we have to get off the bus. And I'm like, I'm not that pleased about having to get off the bus in this random place. So we got off the bus. She's like sick. We're, we're there for a minute. She feels all right. We decide to get on the next bus. We go on the next bus. We think it's the same bus. It's not the same bus. Um, and we, we both climbed in. And we uh, pretty shortly after both fell asleep, because uh, at this point, it's, it's later in the evening. And we'd been drinking a lot. And we're sound asleep on this bus. And the only reason I knew I was asleep was because I woke up in the act of projectile vomiting. <laughs> and it wasn't even like, oh, I woke up and I was like hazy and then I threw up. No, no. It was like unconscious. And then like I'm on the left-hand side of the bus. I hit the right window. <laughs> like I was in a left window seat. And it just rained it. So the bus driver hits the brakes, he gets up, he starts yelling at me in Danish, being from New England, I start yelling right back in English, and uh, we have like a little altercation, and the girlfriend of the time's like trying to like de-escalate, and I'm trying to re-escalate, and I'm like not getting off this bus, because I have no idea where I am, and she talks us into getting off the bus. So we get off the bus, and I inform her that it was not a good decision to get us off of the bus, she informs me that I'm drunk and should shut up. She was right. Um, so we, we sort of take inventory of where we're at. The bus drives away. And, um, well, it was dark. And it was dark because there were no streetlights. And there were street, no streetlights because we were no longer in the city of Copenhagen. And um, there were no, like, street signs. There were farms. Um, and anyone who's been to Copenhagen knows there's no farms like in the vicinity of the city. So we'd been on the bus for a while and we were in like the rural area and we had no idea how to get back to where we were trying to go. And we're like pretty screwed and like feeling like we might end up sleeping in like a cornfield. Um, so we like wander around a little bit and like uh, ended up um, calling, we like didn't have cell we like walked to a street sign and called somebody, some poor soul, I think like her friend who called, a, who like relayed a taxi company because we were on this like Nike, Nikon phone, we couldn't like really get a, or Nokia phone, we couldn't really like Google it. Um, and the taxi miraculously showed up. So remember the, we left the bar at 1 a.m. We walked into the, my host family's door at sunrise, after all this night went on, and we're like, just happy to be alive. Thank you. Barry Johnston. Come on down, yay. Welcome, Barry. Well, good evening, everyone. 
Um, this is a story about uh, locals growing up in Northern Ireland um, during the Troubles. Um, I grew up in a little town called Cookstown in County Tyrone. And um, we didn't really have a lot to do in Cookstown, County Tyrone. We, um, we started to drink early, but that was normal in Ireland. Uh, we uh, learned to drive our parents' cars when we were underage, but that was normal too. And we partied a lot. What else to do when we had troubles going on around us? And this story is actually got all these elements in it. And it starts off by one of my father's hobbies, which was making beer. And he used to brew beer at home, and he would ferment it in a large plastic, what you would call trash can, we called them bin barrels. And my father would regularly test the alcohol content in this with his hydrometer, you know, come back and he'd take off the, the suds off the tub and measure it. And we'd get fed up with the smell of this uh, beer in our house, so we would spike it. We'd go to his liquor cabinet and we'd pour in some of his liquor. <laughs> and my father would come back and he'd see the hydrometer, whoa, whoa, time to bottle the beer. So, <laughs> bottle the beer. And this beer was really strong. Really, really strong. In fact, I would say to my friends, I would have a bet that none of them could drink a full lemonade, what we call the lemonade bottle. I don't know what they would call it, but a lemonade bottle of his beer and remain on their feet. And that bet actually was never actually taken up because it was really strong beer. But I had a friend, and his name was Bertie Kirkpatrick. And Bertie lived in Arbo. And for those of you who don't know Northern Ireland, Arbo is close to Loch Ness. And we knew Arbo as bandit country. And it was known as bandit country because it was controlled by the IRA. And the security forces would not go near Arbo. So Bertie, Bertie was a Protestant like me, but Bertie lived in Arbo on a farm. And he used this fact that the security forces never went there to brew potching. As, and that's what you call here moonshine. So he brewed potching. And Bertie and I used to swap. He would swap me bottles of potching for bottles of my father's beer. These were sort of equivalent. Can you imagine bottles of potching for bottles of beer? So one evening, my parents had gone off. And went off quite often they did and left the house alone. So in good Cookstown fashion, we had a party. <laughs> Told Bertie, bring the potching. And Bertie said, I don't have a car, but I'll come on the Ulster bus. And the Ulster bus is similar to the Flex. You know, it comes in and goes. And so Bertie arrived, and we had the party. Got to the house. Everything goes fine at the party. And, uh, and then Bertie says to me, Barry, the last Ulster bus to Arbo is at 11.30. I have to get the Ulster bus. And so I said, Bertie, don't worry, I'll drive you. And understand, at this stage, I didn't have a license. <laughs> but my father had two cars, and one of these cars was 
what was called a Zephyr 4. I don't know what you call it in this country, but it was a big, huge, big Ford square. It had a bench seat at the front. The gear stick was on the steering column. And we could get this Zephyr 4 up to 110 miles an hour on the motorway to Belfast because in those days there was no speed limit on the motorway to Belfast. And so we could drive this thing. We could get to Belfast in about 25 minutes, which was unbelievable, driving the Zephyr 4. And said, Bertie, don't worry. I'll take you down to the Ulster bus in the Zephyr 4. So gets time. I say, okay, Bertie, let's go, you know. We have been drinking his potching, the beer. I don't have a license. Drive the car down through Cookstown, down Molesworth Street. And my father's business was in Molesworth Street on the left. and just happened to be. So I drive down Molesworth Street and the Ulster bus station's at the bottom of Molesworth Street. And I leave Bertie at the bus. And I turn around the car. And I head up back up motor speed. And at the time I dropped Bertie off, the Ulster Defence Regiment has put a barricade across Motor Street to, to, stop, in, to stop cars and terrorists getting into Cookstown. Now, the Ulster Defence Regiment, for those who don't know, replaced what were known as the B-Specials. The B-Specials were the the police force that they called out when they had trouble in Northern Ireland, but they were so violent in there that they had to be disbanded. And so they replaced the B-Specials with this Ulster Defence Regiment. And they, but they were the same guys. The only difference was that instead of being dressed in black uniform, they were now dressed in military fatigues, and they carried machine guns and all the rest of the equipment. So I've left, I leave Bertie at the bus at the Ulster bus, and I drive up Mosby, and I see the Ulster defense barricade. I'm driving my father's car, I'm drunk, I don't have a license, I have two options. I either turn the car and go, and I'm pretty sure they're going to shoot, because that's what they did in Northern Ireland. If you didn't go up to a barricade, or I go on. And I sort of say, well, I've got to go on. And I have this vision of my father coming to the police station and hearing them that I've been driving his car drunk, having a party in his house. And I drive up the street slowly in the Zephyr 4. And I get to the barricade with the Ulster Defence Regiment there with their guns. And just as I get there, they open the barricade and they stand back and they salute. Because <laughs> they think it's my father driving the Zephyr 4. Next storyteller is Alex Gaston. I'm Alex Gaston. Um, I don't have like a long story, but I have a couple of short ones. Um, I'm a local, a um, couple generations. My 
granddad lives in a very Cape Cod house. It's 300 years old, used to be a shepherd shack. It's haunted by the ghost of a moon cusser, which is very Cape Cod type of pirate. They used to, uh, back before lighthouses, they, um, they used to have signal fires where the you know, shoals were. And the moon cussers used to move them, move the fires so that ships would crash and then they'd come and kill everybody and take all the stuff. Other, even other pirates hated moon cussers. Um, and he hung himself in the house, you know, when the shore patrol came from. So the house is haunted. Um, that's just to establish my bona fides. That has nothing to do with anything. <laughs> that's how Cape Cod I am. Uh, okay, so after I went to college, I learned that there are really like two things about this part of Massachusetts and Cape Cod that don't really have equivalents anywhere else. And the two things are Christmas tree shop, which just, there's no equivalent to Christmas tree shop anywhere. And it's impossible to explain, like really try it sometime. There's just nothing like Christmas tree shop anywhere else in the country. Um, and the second thing is the free shop at the dump, you know, the swap shop. And I learned this when someone in one of my classes liked my shirt and they said, where'd you get it? I said, oh, the dump. <laughs> and they, they looked at me, I was like, yeah, you know, at the free shop. My teacher was like, right, the free shop. And so I had to explain the phenomenon of swap shop so that they didn't think I picked it out of like a mound of garbage. But um, okay, so moving on. I have <laughs> pretty good, I have two pretty good animal stories. Um, okay, so one time my friends and I were at the beach at night and when we got back I realized I left my wallet there. And you know, that's usually, that's almost always hopeless, especially at night, there was like no moon, it was very dark. So we went back and we were sort of desultorily looking around with my friend's flashlight and we shone it on this crippled seagull that was um, just sort of flopping along like in the sand, like dragging itself. And we, we were trying to decide, like, we started following it, trying to decide what to do with it. Like, should we call, could we take it to like wild care or was it like already a hopeless case? Um, so we followed it for a while trying to figure that out and we stopped and got distracted for a moment. And when we looked down, the seagull was gone, but there was my wallet. So, yeah, I mean, the seagull just vanished. <laughs> so I, I decided, you know, that's my spirit animal, is the, uh, the crippled seagull. <laughs> I mean, because there was, what other explanation is there? <laughs> um, I, I've never, I don't know what to do with that information. Like, it hasn't really, but whatever. Okay, so my second animal story, Cape Cod animal story, involves our weird um, coyote wolves, whatever the hell they are. Because, you know, apparently they're not like coyotes. Like, you see a picture of a coyote out west, they're like the size of a fox. Like, they're tiny. And ours are these huge things. So anyway, one, I think, anyway. Um, so one time I was walking back from my friend's house, like, in the winter. And I, my winter coat is like this big Russian, like, wool great coat that I got at the Army-Navy store in Orleans when it was still there. Um, anyway, so I'm walking and I'm smoking a cigarette. And just out of the side of the road in the bush, this huge, like, just dog thing comes and leaps right at my throat. And I've got the collar turned up. That's why I mentioned that the coat was thing. It was like thick wool. And it went for my neck and I 
burnt it with my cigarette. <laughs> like, basically by accident. Like, and I guess I, I got in the eye or something, because the thing just, like, whimpered and ran away. And I mean, I, I hope it was a coyote. I hope I didn't just, like, blind somebody's dog. <laughs> but, um... <clears throat> And when I, but what, even so, when I got home, like the, I was like, I don't know if anyone's ever going to believe me, but I showed my mom my coat and it had its saliva and it ripped, it had ripped out a button. <laughs> like, so that probably really happened. Um, <laughs> I think. And uh, that's it. That's what I got. <laughs> All right, next storyteller. Everyone ready? Mike Basikis. Okay, welcome, Mike. It's Basikis, but nobody gets it right. Um, I am Mike, and I'm, I feel like I'm at an AA meeting, although I haven't been. Anyway, I am Mike, and uh, I'm retired. And I retired effective two weeks ago. <laughs> having worked for 40 years at a school for special needs children in Weston, Massachusetts. I loved that place. Now when you talk about local, the word we used there was milieu. It's a, an environment where everything is therapeutic, a community, a group of people a group of kids, 110 kids, moderate to severe special needs, and 85 staff members who are all dedicated to working together to um, helping kids improve what they need to work on. So I love that place, and over 40 years, there must have been good stories, but I can only think of one, and Dan Wolf is responsible because he's encouraged me to tell this story. The story is about a boy named Billy. Now that's not really his name because those of us in the mental health field have to disguise things. But anyway, this was probably in the early 80s and I was in my office. I was the assistant director at that time. And I got a call in my office that the lower school had blown apart. The kids were going crazy, absolutely bananas. The kids were, there were kids being restrained, kids were screaming, crying, and so on. And I was the assistant director of the school, and I, you know, had gone to graduate school, and I had read a lot of books. Um, so I went out to the lower school and tried to assess the situation, and here's what had happened. This little boy named Billy, five years old, was out at recess, and he asked his teacher if he could go in to the, use the bathroom in the lower school. Billy went into the bathroom and was taking a little bit longer time than normally, and a teacher went to check on him. When the teacher walked into the classroom, which is Billy wasn't in the bathroom, he was in the classroom, he saw Billy strangle a guinea pig. Now, why did Billy strangle this guinea pig? Well, Billy was the son of Billy Sr., 
and Billy Sr. and Billy's mom had gotten divorced and Billy's father got married to a new person whose name, who's, who had a child, a son, and that child's name was Billy. So Billy was being replaced by the new Billy and he basically strangled this guinea pig, which was a good thing because he didn't strangle his new baby brother, stepbrother. Um, so anyway, the lower school was in crisis, absolute crisis. But again, I came out there and I had read a lot of books in graduate school. And one of them was Kubler-Ross on death and dying, stages of grieving and so on. So I decided that we were gonna make this a therapeutic experience and we were gonna really help these kids grieve and really help Billy work this whole thing through. So there were about 10 kids in this classroom and the entire lower school staff all got together and we worked together and we talked. What are we gonna do about this guinea pig? The guinea pig, by the way, I'm not gonna disguise his name. His name was Hector. Hector was dead, uh, and you know he was gone. Uh, but we decided that we were going to have a funeral, that we were going to put Hector to his eternal rest, and the kids together worked. You know, well, we need a casket, so somebody got a shoebox, and then somebody else said, well, he needs to be comfortable. We need to put some cotton and some tissues and stuff in there and kids were drawing pictures and they were being put inside this box and while the box was being decorated uh, one of the staff members went out we have a 27 acre estate one of the staff members went out to the back and dug a, a hole for the cemetery plot um, so we were decorating this box and the so on, and again, I read Kubler-Ross. I know about this kind of stuff. So I walked around with the box to each kid and told each kid, you can say goodbye to the guinea pig. Well, it got to this kid, Jimmy, and Jimmy grabbed Hector, held him close to his heart, and said, Hector, I love you, don't die. Two staff members grabbed his arms, opened his arms, Jimmy, and Hector fell to the ground, and there he was laying on the ground. So anyway, we put Hector back in the box, and this is a true story, put, put Hector back in the box, and it was time now to go out to the gravesite. So we all, en masse, went out to the gravesite, uh, which was already dug, and we're standing around, some of the kids were weeping, some of the staff were in shock that this thing was happening, <laughs> and, um, you know, and I was leading the service. And I said to the kids and the staff, I said, you know, Hector really, really, really wouldn't want you to be sad. His job in life was to give you enjoyment. And he really wanted to please you. And at the same moment I said that, I realized that I was quoting one of the episodes from Mary Tyler Moore. <laughs> the episode where, where Chuckles the Clown, you remember? How many of you remember that? Chuckles the Clown gets shucked. 
by an elephant. Peanuts, the clown is. Was it? It might have been peanuts. And it chuckles. It was chuckles. Anyway, the staff started laughing because they got this reference. The kids were crying. It was the most bizarre experience. The, the guinea pig went in the ground. The, the gravesite was closed up, and we all went on with life. Bob Ho Hoxie. Hoxie. <laughs> Thank you. This is the first. Uh, I've never done this before. My son has done it a few times, and uh, he got me up here. Um, stories about trying to be local when you're not. Um, we traveled with our kids a lot when they were younger, and we went to a variety of places uh, in the country, out of the country, always trying to give them uh, an opportunity to see the world. Um, and tried to do things a little off-grid whenever we could. Uh, well, one year when uh, Josh was 14 and his sister was 16, we agreed to join another family that we had recently met, um, a classmate of Josh's in school, on a trip to Jamaica. Um, not a trip that I was overly excited about, but um, because we were staying in one of those all-inclusive uh, things that they go to every year. They, they had gone for several years and raved about it and, uh, you know, Josh had a new friend and a uh, new school and so on and so on, so we decided to go with them. Uh, and we started to do some research and, you know, so what's this going to be like and so forth and we're hoping that we could um, venture outside of, of the resort and, and see Jamaica and enjoy some of the local color, so to speak, and, and, and have a good time off of the reservation. Um, so after a couple of days, uh, um, we decided that it's time to get the hell out of here. This is, you know, how much, how much really mediocre food can you actually eat um, over a week's time and, and uh, really bad rum and so on and so on. So we decided to go have breakfast somewhere. So we, uh, we called out and got a cab and uh, piled into the cab uh, with uh, my 14-year-old, my 16-year-old daughter and wife and uh, headed into Montego Bay. Uh, and, you know, like I said, we did a little bit of research and, and thought this would be fine and uh, told the cab driver where we were going and he gave me this look like, really, man? Yeah, yeah, we read about it in a little guide and, okay, you sure? Yeah. Okay, yeah, okay. Took us, to, uh, took us to the place, and it seemed fine. And uh, he said, he gave me his card, and he said, uh, okay, man, uh, you know, if you, uh, if you need a little something, you need me to come back, here's, here's my card. And it was, we didn't have cell phones. I don't know if they would have worked anyway, but it was, you know, back before you could really get, you know, particularly in Jamaica, um, do anything with a cell phone. So uh, we had breakfast. It was fine, and, and, you know, there weren't a lot of tourists. There wasn't a touristy place. Uh, but anyway, we, we had our breakfast and decided to go for a walk and started to stroll through Montego Bay. Has anyone been to Montego Bay? Have you, did you, it was not what I was expecting. Um, it was very, very dirty. There was, there was a, um, a dry riverbed that ran through the city that was piled with trash. There was just, it seemed like whenever anyone had something they didn't want, 
they just threw it over the edge of this uh, bank and, and it went down into the river. And there was just, and, and we did find out later that, yeah, they waited for the next hurricane to just wash everything out to sea. So as we're walking, we're looking at each other going, oh, geez. And we're getting into town, and um, we are the only white faces that, to be seen anywhere. And, and, and it seemed like we were an attraction. So people were running out to kind of see who are these white folks walking through town and so forth. And everyone was trying to sell us something. And so I'm realizing fairly quickly that this was a really, really bad idea to check out the local scene. And as we stroll along, I'm sort of gathering my flock around me. Like, and I didn't, I, I was too proud to turn around. We really should have turned around. It was, we were doing something really stupid. Um, and, and my daughter was clearly quite nervous about what was going on. But we barreled forward because I'm not going to be that person. We are not going to turn around. And finally, this young gentleman comes out of a doorway, and he says, hey, folks. And he spoke perfect English, and he said, uh, let me be your guide. And I'm like, oh, Jesus, what, what is this going to be? He says, let me be your guide. And he says, do you want to go to the bazaar? Do you want to go to do some shopping? You want to buy some souvenirs? Yeah, yeah, sure, let's do that. He takes us through some places and so on and so forth. And I'm thinking, I'm going to get my family killed here. This is, this is going to go really, really badly. Everyone's trying to sell my son drugs. Uh, every guy's trying to see if they can sweep my daughter, blonde little girl away, all this stuff. And th but this guy's taking good care of us. And once he showed up, people pretty much did sort of, you know, look the other way to some extent. And we traveled on. And I'm thinking about this taxi driver the whole time. I'm like, why didn't I catch that? You know, why didn't I catch that this guy was trying to give me the heads up here? Don't go into Montego Bay. But we are going to check out the local scene, and that's all there was to it. So we, uh, we, we go into the, uh, the, the, the cardboard village that was set up where people were trying to sell the trinkets and so on and so forth. Um, we were not sure what to do in there, but we very quickly hustled through and so forth. And this guy was helping us out, and he finally got us back out to where we were supposed to be and uh, towards where the restaurant was. And I had the, the, the card of the... The, the taxi cab driver to give him a call. And this guy said, well, this is the end of your tour, guys. And he stuck his hand out. And I'm thinking, Jamaica, money, I don't know. And I, I put a $20 bill in his hand, and he looked at me like I just gave him five cents. And he basically said, I just saved your life, man. What are you doing? So we called the cab driver and got the hell out of there. And that was my last time of trying to be local without really figuring stuff out. <laughs> Larry Horowitz? Is it a Larry? All right, Larry. Woo! Hey, guys. I have a story about cowboys, buffalo, and liquor. I didn't belong with two of those things. But anyway, I'm out at a cattle ranch. I'm sent there to do some paintings. I'm an artist. And the first morning I'm there, the owner of the ranch gives me a CB radio and a cowboy hat. And he says, listen, do not say anything on the CB radio that you don't want the whole 250 people of this town to hear, because we'll be, we will be embarrassed for the rest of our lives if you say anything really, really stupid. So he sticks me on this off-road vehicle and sends me into this 51,000-acre cattle ranch. And 
I'm out there doing my pastel, and I'm very, very happy, and it's a beautiful, beautiful California day. And I see in the distance this cowgirl coming up in the Ford F-150 with the black lab and tongue hanging out of the black lab and the rifle and the whole thing. And she stops by and she says, how y'all doing? And I said, I'm doing fine. She says, you got enough TP? You got to have TP on the range, you know? And I said, no, I'm perfectly taken care of. She says, anything wrong? And I said, well, you know, I thought I was bitten on my shoulder. And, you know, she says, take your shirt off. I take my shirt off and she says, oh, look at that. You were stung by a wasp. She says, just hold still. And she goes real close and with her teeth, she takes out the stinger. And now I'm feeling a lot better than I was because I don't have the stinger in me. And next thing I know, I look over to the left of the field and I see this herd of buffalo on the top of this hillside, way in the distance. And I'm thinking, yeah, you know, maybe they'll come over and I'll put them in my sketch. And I was getting really excited about it, but the guy told me, if they do come over, do not look in the eye of the buffalo. They're really, really mean animals. So, okay. Next thing I know, they're much, much closer. And there's one buffalo in particular that's much, much bigger than all the others. And he's looking at me. And I'm not supposed to look at him. And next thing you know, he's trotting over at quite a speed. And he's at, the, he's at the thing, and he's right next to me. And he's looking over, and I'm in the bed of this little truck thing doing my work. And he's right there, and I can smell his breath. And he's drooling, and he's got this huge eye. The head is just humongous. It's, it's, just, it's just so big. And I'm thinking, I can't look at him, I can't look at him. So I'm not looking at him, and I'm pretending that I'm working, but I'm really getting scared. And I was out for the whole day, and they, all the other buffalo decide that they're going to travel, they're going to go all around me, and now there's like too many of them. And I don't know what to do, because anywhere I look, there's an eye of a buffalo, and I just don't know what to do. So I pretend to look down, but I'm really not. And I see out of the corner of my eye, there's a little baby buffalo, and he's actually in the car, he's in this truck, and he's grabbing my sandwich from the dashboard. And he trots off with my sandwich, and I'm like, oh, okay, he's got my sandwich. But then I see I'm having a problem with the big guy, because the big guy is sort of angry that the other one got the sandwich, but he's the big guy and he wants the sandwich. So he goes like this. And now I'm really scared. And he takes the pickup truck and he pushes his little rear end to it. And the whole pickup truck goes off the ground about three or four feet. And then he lets it go and it pounds down. And he gives me this stare and I can't help looking at him. And he goes right up to the sketch and he takes out this humongous tongue and he just licks the pastel right off the sketch. The paper is perfectly clean gives that pickup truck one last little tilt over and bounce down, and he trots off. So I come back to the ranch, and I'm really, really shaken up. The day's done, and I'm like, I'm never going out in the field again. I'm just sitting there like, don't worry, we'll have a steak dinner. We have the steak dinner, and we're in this guy's international Jeep. It's probably from like 1952. It has no dashboard left, and the way you start it is you put two wires together, and they spark, and the car goes.
So we're driving down the road, and he's already had like 12 Coors Lights because he thinks like beer is like, you know, you could get fat on it, so he drinks Coors Light. <laughs> and he says, you got any money, Larry? I want to go over to the bar, the Longhorn. And I'm thinking, oh, okay. I said, I, you know, I looked, and I had $35 on me. He said, that's plenty. So it's him, his wife, and me. And we go into this little bar, and it's like two slits of the windows, and there's the Tiffany light and the pool table, and everybody in the whole town's there. They're all there. And they're all really, really drinking, including the 16-year-old pregnant girl that should be in school. And he, he says, drink up, drink up. What do you want? I said, I'll have a vodka. And he's just drinking the beer like this. One, two, three, and they're all just lining up. And we get to the point where there's, I've had three vodkas, he's had 18 beers, and his wife has six beers, but we had a problem. She had all our teeth and she looked pretty good. And there were two guys at the bar who were really, really upset with us. They wanted his wife. So we made a quick getaway. And as we were leaving, I said, well, how much was it all? And he said, well, $20, $14 for the booze, $6 for the tip. That's the end of my story. And we are blessed to have Ben Kushigayan. So, uh, has anybody seen the show Deadwood? Yeah. Yeah? Yeah? Has anybody been to Deadwood, South Dakota? No? no? So I guess nobody's been to the Lawrence County Jail in South Dakota. <laughs> so, uh, you guys remember Alex, who was just up here? Um, he, we, we grew up together. We met in sixth grade. Um, the first thing I think I ever said to him, I was trying to, I had these, we... 56k dial-up. I had spent like hours the night before printing out dirty pictures, and I was trying to sell them for 10 cents a piece. <laughs> and uh, this is at the charter school. Uh, a lot of weird things happen at the Lighthouse Charter School. <laughs> um, and he 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 threatened he 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 threatened to tell the teacher on me, um, which I later I found out it was just to see me squirm. That's the kind of kind of guy Alex is, <laughs> and I squirmed. <laughs> um, so anyways, it's flash forward a few years. We've, uh, yeah, we've been best friends for, you know, I think we were 19 or 20, and we, you know, we'd grown up on Cape Cod, and uh, we were ready to, ready to get out of here. You know, my, my life growing up on Cape, uh, and I don't know if I'm going to get to the second half of my local story. Most of this is not going to be local, but my life growing up on Cape was... It was good until I got out of high school, and then I got into the kind of, you know, the drinking and smoking pot scene, and I, I really just, you know, I wanted to see some of the world. I felt, I felt very, you know, oppressed by Cape Cod. It didn't, you know, the winters were long, the summers were wonderful, but, you know, they were, they were fleeting, and, you know, just way too many PBR cans were piling up in my friend's bedroom, so <laughs> it was time to get out of here. Um, so we, we decided to move to Portland, and um, now, now, meanwhile, my, a good friend of mine, who I won't won't name, but um, some of you probably know him, uh, was moving out there as well. And we'd, we'd both started, um, you know, some alternative, alternative uh, income um, opportunities. Uh, and, uh, you know, we, 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 saw, we had this get rich 
quick scheme, and like we had everything planned out. So we, we, we move out to Portland. Um, how, how could this possibly go wrong? And uh, we, we move out to Portland, and it's, it's going to be awesome. You know, so I, I, on the way out there, it was, the, the trip on its, on its own was a, was a story in and of itself, but I, we, we recruited two people. Um, and we kind of turned into a caravan. It turned into like two cars going out there. And um, we get out. I'm, I'm, I'm living in my car. I've been living in my car for a while. It was a Honda. I had like, you know, guitars and all my clothes, which at that point was like two drug rugs and a ripped pair of jeans. Um, and I'm, I'm living in the back of my car. We get there like just in time for rainy season. And I'm making my living playing guitar on the side of the road uh, in, in the Hawthorne district. And it's actually, it worked out pretty nicely. There was dollar fish tacos. It was... Uh, it's delicious. I got tired of them after a couple of months, but you know, they were cheap. And um, but you know, so living in my car was no big deal. I've been doing it for a while. I've been like you know camping out on beaches and you know all sorts of stuff. But uh, this time it was a little different because I was also living in the back of my Honda with a girl, Angelica, and her poodle <laughs> for 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 a while and. Um, so she, anyways, let's, let's fast forward. I, I had all this planned out meticulously in my head and it's gone, it's gone. And I, I can already hear the buzzing like coming in. So I'm gonna, so anyways, we, my friend who is rema remaining nameless and I decide we're, we're ready to do this thing. He gets some connections down in Humboldt County and we get, we go down and it, you know, we almost die. Like we almost go off this icy ravine and you know, we end up being like four hours late to meet up with these really sketchy Loatian dudes. Like they were like, we were warned like, you know, don't like mess with these guys. You know, they, you know, people disappear in Humboldt County all the time. And so we, we you know, and we, we end up like sitting in this hotel room um, for, you know, for like an hour waiting for him, this guy gets there and he just makes us, you know, sit there for an hour so it doesn't look suspicious, you know, he just makes us sit there and he just stares at us. And, and, uh, and, and but, you know, we, we get out of the hotel room and we're feeling good. It's like, how could it go wrong? You know, we're, we're ready to go. We have like this big American Eagle bag full of, you know, that alternative income opportunity. And, 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 and we're like, okay, so now we just have to get to New England, right? It's only like 3,000 miles away. Um, so being, being good old Cape Cod boys, we, we forgot a few things. First and foremost, Portland is rainy. It's rainy all the time. But even a couple of miles outside of Portland, it's snowy, very, <laughs> very, very snowy. Uh, and, and so, the, you know, the first time we try to get out, we just try to go directly east. You know, we're just going to go straight across. I think we're probably going to go through, like, Spokane and then go off along 90. And we get, you know, maybe 10 miles out, and it's just, it's blizzarding. Like, we can't get out. This is January. I want to say January. So we, we say, okay, we're going to go, go down south. We, we wait a couple of days, and we plan it out. We're going to go down south. And, um, in the and this was good, because this gave us some more time to plan. So we, like, you know, we had our cover story. We are you know, playing for a friend's wedding out in, uh, out in Massachusetts. Um, and, yeah, that's a great cover story. So we had, like, we had our, you know, the American Eagle bag stuff in the back of an amplifier. We had, like, a guitar each. I had my drug rugs, you know, for traveling clothing and whatnot. And we're, we're going south. We're going to go down through California and then, or, you know, Northern California and then out uh, through Utah. Um, and of course an oil tanker like, you know, spills over in the middle of the highway. So we're stuck there for like 10 hours with, you know, all this stuff in the back of the car. And, and you know, so we, we, we end up turning around and coming back. We're like, okay, well two times, that's not so bad. We're gonna try one more time. So 
the last try, we're going to do it. And we make it. You know, we get, we get there. Uh, oh, the other thing we forgot about was the Rockies. Yeah, those are there too. <laughs> but, you know, we, we make it across. We get, like, right behind. He got some snow chains. We get right behind this big truck, and, like, we're, we're just, like, right behind it. And it's just clearing the way for us. Um, and we, ma- we make it through the Rockies. We make it, and we're, we're driving, and we're going. And after about, like, 10, fi- I don't know how long it was, I take over, and um, I start driving, and yeah, should be fine. We're only like 2,000 miles away now. And I, I, I get, you know, oh, here's the other thing. I, I had a deadline. It's, it's a great idea to transport, you know, things with a deadline, because that means you speed. And so I was going 92, 93. <laughs> um, I didn't know, I, are you whispering to me? No, I'm hearing things. <laughs> um, I'm going, you know, 92 or 93, something like that. I get pulled over. Um, I hadn't seen a single cop all the way around on Route 90 all the way back. But, but I get pulled over, and we're in the, uh, in the Black Hills of South Dakota. And right before we got pulled up, the uh, Beatles song, Rocky Raccoon, came on. And every time I hear that song now, that's just etched in my mind. And it was beautiful, you know, just, I mean... I had, you know, as it was just playing in my head, even after I'd gotten out of the car, you know, he, he, the, the cop pulls us back. Oh, oh, other great juicy detail. So I wanted to be the guy <laughs> with the stash. So I had this horrible 20-year-old mustache, right? Like, oh, that's the time. Um, anyways, I don't really know where I'd be going from here. Just, uh, I've been trying to find that mugshot. I welcome you, Ben Kushigian. If you can find the mugshot, bkushigian at gmail.com. There's another one that happened later. <laughs> that's not nearly as good. <laughs> But the, 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 fir- the first one, the second one, I'm like happy to be there. I'm like smiling and like good night. Uh, the, the first one, yeah, if you can find that, please get, get a hold of me. I would love to get it. Right, thank you. Thank you for listening to the Mosquito Story Slam podcast 2015 summer season. The Mosquito is produced by Tidal Theatre Company, Kate Langstaff and Vanessa Vardabedian, and is sponsored by WOMR 92.1 FM and Boobalas by the Bay Restaurant in Provincetown. Find your next opportunity to join us live and tell your story at facebook.com slash Mosquito Story Slam or via Twitter at Mosquito Story. Listen to all Mosquito podcasts on soundcloud.com slash Mosquito Story Slam. Tell your friends, take a chance, and bite it live.